Hello, welcome to the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast, where we grow smarter, learning from the stories and skills, ideas and insights of farmers and agrarians. Our guest today is Mimi Castile, the creative mind behind Hopewell Wines and Vineyard in Salem, Oregon. Together, we'll be discussing how she transitioned her vineyard, viticulture practices, the future of regenerative agriculture, and much, much more. This is truly a fantastic interview. I hope you enjoy our conversation today with Mimi Castile. Mimi Castile, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Now, getting started here, I'd love to learn more about Hopewell Vineyard and Winery. When did you guys start and what does the winery look like? Mm, great question. So the Hopewell project has only really been in existence since 2015 as a product that was out in the world. So we, we launched our first wine in 2015, but the vineyard and the farm was established in late 2007, early 2008. And that was when I was working with my family's vineyard and estate called Bethel Heights. So it has a a longer lifespan than that, but the wine didn't exist until 2015. And the winery, when you can see it, (laughs) it's not very visible. It actually really truly looks like a hobbit hole. So it's dug into the ground and we put a bunch of rocks that we had excavated from the property around it so that it would look just like a little door into the hillside. And it uses all the, you know, lovely thermal protection of the ground to be basically the appropriate temperature for wine storage and winemaking. And it really looks like a hobbit hole more and more every year because the landscaping is sort of maturing around it. And um, yeah, so hopefully it doesn't look like much from from where a person would stand to look at it. Well, and that's one of those neat things where basically what you've done then is when the door is opened, it it's like there's this little, oh, what's the word I'd use? Enchanted kingdom. It, it's like opening mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. a different world. And I think that that's one of the cool things that agriculture can do, especially when it is local agriculture and you create that kind of biological diversity around the farm where it really does feel like all of a sudden you've walked into this incredibly unique biosphere and you open Mm -hmm. a door and there's this new kingdom, this new part of it, this new aspect that you wouldn't have expected. It's kind of like, I enjoy spy books and spy novels and the thing Mm -hmm. that they always say is the thing that will always be cool is a hidden compartment in a briefcase and that's kind of what this is it's that hidden realm inside of a realm that's already majestic and magical in its own way well that makes it sound even better I love your version (laughs) the the vineyard started you guys purchased it it was an old Christmas tree farm is that right That's correct. I really have been, you know, since coming back to agriculture, I've been very focused on the rehabilitation of degraded lands, Um, you know, farms that have been abandoned or, you know, landscapes that have really been considered to be, you know, quote unquote, used up. So Mm -hmm. the idea of taking a very intensively used piece of ground and using agriculture to restore it is really what inspires me. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a Christmas tree farm before, before we got here. I was curious, what, what did that transition process look like from when you (laughs) got the property to now where it is today? It looked, I mean, it looked like a lot of just sort of slow, Progress, not always clear progress. I'd say, you know, the first thing that you notice when you go to a Christmas tree farm, if you've ever, I know they're not popular in all parts of the country, but here out west, there are a lot of Christmas tree farms. And one of the things you notice first is that nothing is growing there except for the trees. So it's a very chemically intensive type of agriculture. And when the trees were removed, um, that was definitely what it looked like here and the first things that you know were starting to come back or grow were the 
you know, what, what people call the, you know, the worst possible weeds. And so the first several years that we were here, it was a lot of compost and compost tea applications and then seeding as diverse of a ground cover as possible. A lot of that was not successful at first. It just sort of lay dormant in the seed bed, probably just didn't have the appropriate germination conditions. But over time, we've seen some of those first seeds that we put down start to come up. And this is, you know, 12 years, 12, 13 years in. Mm -hmm. It's always kind of rewarding to see one of those you know, one of those things that I put down when we first got here that I thought was never going to come back, just finding one of them, you know, one individual is a, a sign of hope for the future. But at first it was, you know, it was tough to even get, a, you know, a 10 species cover crop established here and, you know, and really be successful. And the idea was always to be no-till. And so, you know, just building any amount of organic matter was paramount to establishing a vineyard here. So that was really the goal of the first several years, which is to, you know, build enough topsoil and, and kind of get the ground prepared enough so that the vines would have a chance because we, you know, there's no irrigation here. So we were going to be doing this without water and yeah, so that's what the first few years looked like. It looked like a, a lot of slow, you know, just plodding progress. And then over time, and I think this is what others, you know, would probably echo, is just those improvements build on themselves and mm -hmm. biology works exponentially. So you see, you know, your rewards are greater the longer you you know, the longer you put more in, the the more you get out of it. So we've definitely seen a lot of good progress since then, but I think those early years, you really question whether or not you've made a, a terrible mistake. <laughs> that reminded me of a quote. I'd like to say it's by Robert Louis Stevenson. It's one of my favorites. I've posted on our Instagram uh, a number of times, but it's, don't judge each day by the harvest that you reap, but by the seeds that you plant. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think I've that, used that one many times. <laughs> that it, it's so cool to be able to see a seed that you planted 12 years ago finally start growing. It's when the conditions are just right. Yeah. That's when it starts. It. You also remind me of a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it or not. I love that. I love that book. Yeah. Oh, yes. So then you know exactly what I mean in the, those habits build on each other so much like when you start your building your ecology, building your diversity is that yes. as time goes on, it starts accelerating exponentially because it is that kind of investment. It, it, it is its own version of an atomic habit. And I just think it's so cool to get to see how life mirrors nature in that way. I couldn't agree more. And it is the way that, you know, when you start making connections back to the land, there are connections that open up in, you know, inside of you. And it's all about new surface areas, you know, in your, in your mind and your, you know, what we call the heart. And I think that that is really fed by the process and the, you know, the habits of just being with and coexisting with a piece of ground over, over slow time. Mm -hmm. It is amazing to see that the bond that a farmer grows in with their ground. And I, I think that that's such a healthy, it, it can become unhealthy, obviously at times, but <laughs> I would say it's fascinating to see how it really does. It, it becomes a cooperative relationship between the farmer and the land because. Yes. I, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to echo that. I think we, the, the most ideal version of a farm farmer relationship is that idea of codependency in, in the best possible way, Co cooperation, codependency, because we are beholden to these places in, in ways that I think we're only really just now beginning to appreciate in the way that we need to appreciate them. And the idea of actually giving back to the land, not just in word, but in deed, is it's a very powerful bond-creating effort. And that, you know, 
that attempt to give as much as you're getting is it's a daily practice. It's a daily meditation on this super important relationship that I think is, you know, echoed in other relationships that you can form, but just understanding how deeply dependent we are on these places that feed us and clothe us and shelter us and protect us. It's, it is the most ideal version, I think, of, of the relationship that a farmer could have with the piece of land that supports them. I really want to dig into more on this topic, but I have that set up a little bit later in our discussion. And mm-hmm. I want to pivot here a little bit to ask more specifics about the winery, actually about the vineyard itself and viticulture, because I don't know as much about that topic. And that's one of the things I love about this show is getting the opportunity to ask those types of questions. So I used to work at an apple orchard back as a kid. And that helped me learn so much about the incredible amount of varieties of apples there are out there. I, I, obviously, obvious, I, there are thousands. And I worked with maybe 100 at most. I'm just curious, is there a similar type of situation with grapes and vineyards where there are these incredible amount of diverse varieties of grapes that then go into making different kinds of wines uh, and if so, what type of varieties do you raise? Mm-hmm. It's a great question and a very worthy investigation, I would say. So much like with apples, with commercially grown apples, grapes have been, you know, over millennia for wine, have been selected for having specific traits that make great wine. And so, yes, there are thousands of varieties of grapes possible. I would say, you know, less than a hundred are, you know, regularly cultivated for wine production. And even fewer than that make up the bulk of, you know, wine grapes and that are commercially grown in the world. So while the genetic potential of a of a grape seed is very much akin to the genetic potential that's bound up in an apple seed, you rarely see vineyards that have thousands of cultivars of grapes, if you will, because we've been clonally selecting the ones that we think make the greatest wines. And that is one of the weaknesses, I think, of the system that we've built. However, as a person who deeply, deeply loves wine and appreciates the particularities of certain cultivars that we work with here, one of the beautiful truths of wine grapes is that epigenetically these cultivars that we work with will have different expressions in different environments. And so you do see variety amongst, you know, from plant to plant within the same cultivar because they are so genetically malleable, if you will. They're very, they're very sensitive to their environment. So while we work with here at Hopewell, we have Pinot Noir, which is a red, and it's a red grape. And then we also have Chardonnay and Chenin Blanc. Those are the three varieties that we work with here. We have different cultivars. We have different um, clones of those things. So different, different expressions of those same cultivars planted within the vineyard for diversity. And then I just think it's a very fair question that you ask, which is, you know, a, just generally speaking about the diversity of these plants that we work with and how how were we thinking about that in terms of the framework for the longevity of these of these very coveted grape varietals as we move into a very uncertain future. So those are the three that I work with here, but it's a really good question and one that I think about <laughs> a lot because, you know, I've grown, I've grown a lot of apples and pears and cherries and plums and all of the perennial plants that you could eat a fruit from. And there's so much potential there for diversity, but we really rein it in by selecting what we think are the traits that we want to see either on a shelf or for a particular, you know, expression in wine. But that does really empirically limit the organism at a very basic level, um, especially like with wine grapes or even apples now where they're almost exclusively 
grafted onto somebody else's roots so that yeah. they, you know, they can resist certain things. And so they're really not, we're not building the strongest versions of these things. <laughs> we move into a very unstable future. And that's what I find fascinating about this topic because like, okay, so just continue with Apple illustration. If you ask nine people, 10 people what their favorite apple is, at least eight of them will say Honeycrisp and the other two will say Red Delicious. And that's when I start tearing out my hair and going into the many different varieties that there are that are better than those two, but it's because the other, those particular ones have been so commercially driven down the throats of everyone that that's and all they, they know. are the most, yeah, they're the most dumbed down version of something beautiful that you can put on a shelf and it'll last, it'll last a very, very, very long time. Well, and that's what but I was curious about with grapes. Very little else. Because I, I don't have a, that much experience with wine. I, I'm just getting to the point where I'm starting to, I, I'm still relatively young. So like my drinking age has just kind of begun. So I'm just starting to dip my toe in trying this wine or that wine. And from what I understand, you can play, as you said, there are, you have more genetic, epigenetic playability for teasing out different flavors in those specific grapes, depending on where they're grown. So I was just curious, like, what degree of variation you get even within those four or five different cultivars that are most common? Yeah, well, it's a great, that is a great question. And I think, you know, to your, to, to contrast this a little bit to apples, contrary to, now this is, a, I'm speaking specifically about wine grapes. I'm not mm-hmm. talking about table grapes, but contrary to apples, which are being largely grown for the, you know, the dessert market or for the, mm-hmm. you know, the shelf, the grocery store shelf, wine grapes don't get consumed fresh. And mm-hmm. so they have been selected for flavor and for other things because of the, the products that you make out of them. So luckily for wine, uh, we have not been so consumed with the aesthetic or the shelf stability of this particular They don't have to have a particular shine of- to each grape when they're sitting there? Mm-hmm. No, they don't. And if they, uh, you know, that's the other beautiful thing is that if they, um, if they look bad, I mean, it's just like cider apples, right? If you mm-hmm. have worked in orchards, then you know that so many of the apples that are actually worth eating and enjoying are the ones that look the ugliest and last the least amount of time on a shelf, but they're so worth it for that one moment that you get with them. And the same is true for wine grapes. And what's interesting about, so Pinot Noir is a very thin skinned red grape and it almost looks like bluish black on the vine. And depending on where it grows, like if it's grown in a very, very windy spot, that skin will be margin thicker than if it's grown in a protected place and that completely changes the structure of the wine that you're going to make because all of that thickness of the skin equals you know tannin and Mm -hmm. denser polyphenols and that ends up in the wine as well so these little subtle changes in where things are grown and what the year throws at them and then also what else is growing around them can impart very, very subtle nuance and sometimes very unsubtle nuance to the end wine, which is why I think wine does have this sort of unique power amongst other agricultural products because it has gone through this creative alchemical process with a human being in a way that, you know, your lettuce hasn't necessarily done that. Um, and it, and it is one of the unique qualities of wine in terms of having these, you know, these deeper conversations about food is just that people are so compelled by Mm -hmm. just how different one, you know, one block of Pinot Noir is from the block right next door, like not even across a fence line, but just 10 feet away. These, these expressions of the same cultivar can be so different. So would you say that the the narrative that goes along with wine that is more intrinsic in its marketing? It's just it sounds so like it has a closer easier. sense of place. 
it's, it's easier to talk about it. I think okay. that what we've been able to do in wine, so first of all, it attracts a, a creative set of people, right? It's not just somebody who wants to be a farmer decides to grow wine grapes. <laughs> um, it's, it's usually somebody who has fallen in love either with the process or the product or both and thinks that something truly special is only possible in one place and they're going to do that. So, it's, it, I mean, it attracts a certain person from the get-go, but then there's this whole process that you go through with the natural product to create something new, something that's both a part of you and a part of hopefully a large part of the place where it's been grown. And, you know, I grow, we, we grow a lot of vegetables and we grow fresh fruit as well. And I think that that, that process that we go through making wine, it allows for a way of talking about the product, the grape itself, that is, it, it has really done immense favors for marketing wine. And I lament that other growers of really fascinating foods, mm-hmm. foods, fibers, whatever it is that you grow, that it, it's a much more difficult task to talk to somebody about um you know, an, an apple or a piece of lettuce or something like that, unless you have really gone super, super deep into thinking about why that thing, how is it different here from, you know, my neighbor who also grows that same thing. And I think that's, you know, that's an opportunity that exists for other growers of other things to really market their products in a different way. But it's been easier for winemakers because we do this, you know, we do this thing behind the curtain to make this amazing product that transforms people's minds. And I think that there's a real opportunity there, but I think it's been one of those things that has been mostly the the provenance of winemakers, but it shouldn't be because we should be able to talk about the terroir of everything. And that is sort of the connection that we should be trying to make between the food that we're growing now and the fiber that we're growing now and the people who support it or should be supporting. We had on the show, I think it was two years ago, a gentleman named Joe Heitzberg and he had written a book called craft beef. And I think what I loved about that concept was he took the idea of this is how wine is marketed. In essence, we, we appreciate these unique factors of wine. And he applied that model to how beef should be considered in breed, in location, in down to what they're fed. And being a person who grew up on an organic beef farm, cattle farm, I I just love the concept. And it's just one of those things that I truly enjoy seeing how much of the story gets added to products. I used to work at farmer's markets. I've seen farmers try to explain lettuce the same way that Uh, someone would explain wine. And it's always interesting to see the degree of success that they can have. And some of it does come down to how good of a story can the farmer tell. But that's kind of getting into the weeds. I just was curious. And it's one of those things that I enjoy getting to hear about. I I love it too. And I really think that there is that story and that power behind everything that's worth growing and and worth doing in the world. And it's just... We've gotten so used to, I guess, dancing around or getting what we want without paying attention to the story behind it. And that's sort of at the heart of a lot of our problems. It's just our attention span and our level of distraction is has taken us away from the, the, the truth and the stories behind what feeds us. That is an amazing point that I absolutely love. We could you repeat that? It's that we get away. F- we try to get away with gain away from the story, disconnecting from the story. Yeah, I think that our our lives now are designed to walk around. We've created these beautiful networks of <laughs> paths that go everywhere, but to the story behind the things that we that we need and that actually feed and nourish us. 
And that's because the amount of distraction in our lives today is really, it's all consuming. And I think there's a, a fear now of what it would mean to pay attention, to pay real attention to the things that actually matter and that are driving our world today. But that, you know, just giving yourself that one experience of learning the story behind your food, learning the story behind your wine or your cider or whatever, or even your beer is such a gift to yourself and to finding that path again, back to the stories behind the things that really matter and not the things that are just flashing in front of your face every day. But it's so much easier to know what to do when the YouTube app is telling me what to do. <laughs> right. So, and it's just such a gigantic world that just gets bigger every day. My regular job is actually that I'm an organic inspector. And so when I oh. heard that you guys are a certified organic winery, it instantly, I went, oh, this is incredible. This is amazing. And I actually have had the experience of getting to go to a farm where they were certified organic for the farm. But as their vineyard grew, the organic acreage shrank. And they left me with the impression that they just didn't know how they would possibly try to raise wine grapes organically. So I'm just kind of curious, what are some of the differences between uh, conventional vineyard practices and organic ones? It's a... Um it's actually a, a matter that I, I think about quite a bit. Um, it's, it's heavily debated in the wine and viticulture world about, you know, the, the differences between, you know, what we call conventional and what we call organic or biodynamic or, you know, whatever. And, you know, here in the West and certainly in the parts of the old world that people are probably mostly familiar with France and Italy, wine grapes and vineyards have come to, they have, there are forms in people's minds. Like when you think about a vineyard, um, usually it's, you know, it's very quick for an image to come into your mind. It's very tidy. It's very like straight, narrow rows and, you know, tight little canopies of green leaves and no weeds and, you know, a lot of times no no plants growing really except for the grapevines themselves. And I think that aesthetic is what, again, a lot of times in farming, the aesthetic of farming or the, um, the presentation of the a pure stand, yeah, a form of a thing is what drives our practices. And so this vineyard looks a lot different than that. Um, and to a lot of people looks very messy and, um, and impossible. I mean, I have had people remark that it's not possible to farm this way because there's just too much competition and there's too many other things, you know, going on. But we also know, I mean, this is where it's baffling to me how we will deny <laughs> we will deny the laws of physics and chemistry that actually have made life possible on earth just to defend our farming practices. So, you know, I mean, as an organic inspector, there's a whole suite of things that we don't use and, and can't use, but wouldn't use anyway. And for me, that starts with anything systemic. So anything that would systemically make its way into the plant is going to end up in the wine. And so we, you know, we're, we were never going to use those things to begin with, but in a conventionally farmed vineyard, you would often see, you know, no weeds at all. So herbicides would be used or at least mechanical cultivation. And then the disease program is really what drives the, the majority of the inputs in a vineyard. And so this is where the debate gets really interesting because the main enemies of mm -hmm. wine grapes are powdery mildew here where I live and downy mildew in other parts of the world. So in Burgundy, they battled both of those things. And the spray programs that 
people use in vineyards are largely, if not exclusively, to battle those two pests. And then in other parts of the world, there are insect pressures and other things that are starting to become a, a major part of you know what drives the spray program. But what's interesting is that the use of systemics in conventional vineyards or even conventional orchards or other other crops often gets defended because it means you can spray less. Because if you're using physical barriers or um, non-systemic or synthetic chemistries, you often have to spray those more often. And what's nice about owning your own farm or being in charge of your own project, and I'm speaking about myself here, is that... (laughs) As it as a little laboratory here, my goal is really to see, like, to to really push into, you know, that idea of organic. But more than that, what is the lowest input system that you can design in this, you know, in this region with this rainfall pattern, with these known pests? And what's been really interesting about, you know, being this deep into it and having had this many vintages to kind of see where those risk reward, you know, sticky points are that the more impact viticulture has on, you know, on landscape. So the more a wine region gets known for being a wine region, the more vineyards are going to be there. And that changes what's possible that changes the kind of risk that you can really push into and it's one of the one of the things that I think about most right now is just I now live in a place that's very much known for growing world-class wine and as a result of that it is no longer the patchwork of diverse habitat and agriculture that it used to be it is becoming more and more vineyard 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 and since most people are farming conventionally or at most, you know, (laughs) whatever we're calling sustainable these days, (laughs) that really changes what's possible for people who really want to push the limits, you know, where you want to see how few times and how little material you can spray and still have a viable, healthy crop at the end of the year. And I think that that's something that we need to talk about more as as organic growers as regenerative growers like what are the what is the future if we're all these tiny little islands that are so exposed because of what's going on around us i totally went off topic then that, but that's it okay. is something that i think about <laughs> i it, this show, we go down rabbit trails all the time. And actually, I do want to talk about regenerative agriculture. But first, since you mentioned experimenting, I, I'm truly curious because that's one of the cool things we get to uh, talk about on the show is the experimentation. I mean, we're intellectual agrarians after all. So when you are, when if you have an experiment that you're doing on your farm, are you using the entire vineyard or do you have like a portion that you set aside? Do you have multiple ongoing experiments at the same time? I'm just curious if, how structured the experimental processes for you? I tend to be pretty structured. Um, as a former scientist, I really do believe in, you know, if you're going to undertake an experiment, it's only an experiment if there's a control. So, <laughs> yes, we always have multiple experiments going on, both in the vineyard and in the winery. And that started... I mean, that started as soon as I came back to farming. When I was working at my family's estate, I really wanted to work with these old, own-rooted vines. So these were ungrafted Vitus vinifera wine grapes. And there's a root louse that basically devastated the most famous vineyard regions of the world called phylloxera. Mm-hmm. And early early on in my family's history here, it was believed that phylloxera wouldn't ever come to Oregon because the climate wasn't right for it, but it turns out it's totally fine. It's very, very happy to live here as well as anywhere else in the world. And, and so when phylloxera was discovered in Oregon, most of the vineyards at the time were on their own roots. And the only, you know, like the only... Um, way that had been discovered to avoid phylloxera was to use 
Native American rootstock because the organism is from the southeastern United States and it lives symbi- well, at least not um, not in a parasitic way on Native American grapevines. So all the vineyards of the world that fell down to phylloxera are now planted on American rootstocks, but we still had this huge plantation of own rooted European wine grape. Mm -hmm. And one of my first experiments was really on, you know, what types of biological intervention. So, you know, working on the health of the soil, working on the diversity of microorganisms that are already here that already do a very good job of helping a plant defend itself. How can you support those organisms to create a robust immune system for a plant that is going to be threatened by the introduction of this new pest? And since it's not native to our part of the United States, it's probably got a few weaknesses. And so we did some controlled experiments in some of those old blocks at Bethel Heights, and that's really what inspired me to just keep doing that. And then we have this added benefit of being able to then take it through to another product, which is the wine, and follow these experiments as they relate not just to like the outward appearance or flavor in the vineyard of a wine grape fresh off of the cluster, but like what does that mean for the wine? And so that's a very long-winded way of saying, yes, I experiment all the time, and yes, I believe in always having a control. I can't begin to tell you how big the smile on my face was when you said you believe in having controls with it, because that's, that is when you are actually trying to experiment, and that is amazing. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you for appreciating it. <laughs> Talking about regenerative agriculture, you're a very strong advocate of it. You've talked a lot about it before, and the topic comes up on our show every now and again. And I'm going to kind of ask two questions here. The first is, could you define what regenerative agriculture means? And I guess that opens up a much larger discussion. But the other thing would be, I, I one of the universal things I tend to hear is that no-till tends to be a very strong element of regenerative agriculture. And you even mentioned earlier, you guys tried a no-till this is revealing quite how little I know about viticulture, but how much tilling normally takes place in viticulture. Okay. Well, I'll start, I'll start at the end and then I'll work my way back. Um, in viticulture, it is very common practice to cultivate down at least every other row, if not every single row of the vineyard system itself at least once, if not multiple times per year. So it's a fairly intensive uh, tillage regime, both on the organic side, organic biodynamic um, and conventional. So that is common practice. Part of the reason for that is that you've probably heard the, um, (laughs) you've probably heard the lore about how vineyards and and vines like to grow on very weak soil, which is true. Wine grapes really do express something unique and special, as do many plants, when they're grown in a nutrient-poor environment. So, you know, the most famous vineyards in the world right now are on shallow south-facing, rocky hillsides with very little topsoil to begin with. Which explains why Wisconsin has more wine than I thought, but that's neither here nor there. Yes, right, but it's anywhere. I mean, it's really, it will happen anywhere that people think there's, you know, poor or struggling soil. It it has become quite the fashion to try try a wine, (laughs) try a wine grape there. And I think that that's, um, it's unfortunate that the observation was made, you know, even back in the days when monasteries and, you know, basically the, the church would have had some of the great early vineyards. Mm-hmm. And it was observed that wine grapes made great wine when they were grown on, you know, what would be considered poor soils for growing other crops like row crops or grain crops and things like that. So, 
that has led to this belief system around viticulture that um, sort of is a negative feedback loop when it comes to actually repairing processes. So I think that we could we could make these value judgments, which I wish we could just get away from saying good, bad, or anything in between when it comes to evaluating a piece of land. Mm -hmm. But from a nutrient perspective, it is certainly true that wine grapes will often thrive in nutrient-poor conditions. Saying that, I still believe that having a whole system is the only defensible way to practice agriculture. So if we cannot grow something where it must be sustained through either aggressive cultivation or any practice that interrupts and stops the circular cycles that must be maintained in order for there to be any authoritative use of the word sustainability, then it should not be practiced there because something can grow there. It's just not what you want to grow there. Mm. And that's my, that's my current. <laughs> if I have a soapbox, it's that one. And then to get into the regenerative can, part can of it. Can I um, just interject there one yeah, second? Please. I love that you made that comment about just because it's it, something can grow there. It's just not what you want to grow there. I, I have seen this, far more often than I'd care to admit, I, it just drives me nuts. And sometimes when I go to a farm, I go to a place and they're trying to do this type of model of farming that they know that they, they, they just know corn and beans. The land is not good for corn and beans. I'm sorry. There's a region, your reason that you're having marginal success raising row crops here. Try something different, but they don't think of trying anything different. I would almost argue even that just as much as there's a certain type of, you can only grow certain types of crops maybe in a certain area or certain, it, the land can support something. It just isn't the thing you want it to. I would argue that people can even fall into that same category in some cases. A person can do something. It just might not be the thing that they wanted to or think that they should. That's neither here exactly. nor there. That That's just a random thought that popped into my mind once you started going down that route. I just wanted to put it into the world, and now I'd love to hear more about regenerative agriculture. Well, it's, I mean, your point is actually much bigger than you make it out to be, and, and one of the things I like about your podcast is that it it is willing to tread into the, the philosophy and the um, the ethics behind what we're currently doing, because I think if we decide we're not going to investigate that part of agriculture, then we don't really stand much of a chance. You know, I mean, it's, there, there are some really deeply rooted problems in how we have chosen to decide what goes where and who gets to do that and how we define the sustainability of a thing based on what we've decided we want to put there. (laughs) Um, And as a person who's been an organic inspector for however long you've been doing it, I'm sure that that is something that you've thought about quite a bit. And this is why when you ask the question, you know, how would you define regenerative agriculture? I really appreciate that you ask that question because I am having a real moment of fear and anxiety around the idea that we would define regenerative agriculture because it is part of a national and international conversation around climate change and how we are going to build a future that actually potentially looks better than the one that we're currently looking at. And to me, one of the most critical pieces of understanding and having a foundation in regenerative philosophy is that there is no, it cannot be Dogmatize. It, it will not stand for recipes because it is going to have to be tailored to every little 
place where lands have been depleted. Context-dependent, scalable. Exactly. And I think that that's, that's part of this conversation that isn't getting enough attention right now. If we make it just about no-till or if we make it just about as much carbon as possible, as quickly as possible, we will have missed our greatest opportunity, which is to actually bring resilience back to the landscape. And carbon, yes, super critical part of this piece of the puzzle, but if if it's the only thing that we look at, it is a red herring. And we will again be, you know, pushing a square peg into a round <laughs> hole. And I, I really, when when the opportunity arises to talk about it, there are basic processes, circular loops of the way that nutrients and minerals and life is recycled. And death is a critical part of that. And all of the nutrients and all of the minerals are cyclical and important. And in order for us to really impart resilience and really have agriculture that supports circular loops, we have to accept that it's going to be different everywhere and it's going to be an iterative process based on where things are, when they are, who's there, et cetera. What's the, what is the geospatial context for that particular farm and how much participation is there, you know, amongst the rest of the farmers around you and all of those things. So we've taken circular systems and made them point to point. Mm-hmm. Like it is a, it is an exit only, right? This is an exit only system. And so in the future, everything that goes to build something from this place is going to have to be brought in. So to close all those loops again, we have to use the things that nature has always used. And that's, you know, the plant is the vector of communication between sky and soil and all of the living and dying components of that system need to be restored in order for all of those minerals and nutrients to be recycled. So it's not just, you know, bringing back perennial grasses to close the carbon cycle. We need to have habitat on farms. We need to have a diversity of vertebrate and invertebrate life. This isn't just about what happens in the soil. It's about what, you know, who's visiting that place, who's dying in that place and who's being decomposed and making the next substrate for the next many organisms to come. I mean, we need these farms to not just breathe, but to vigorously live and exist. And it's, it's a much bigger level of understanding than just to till or not to till. I mean, that I think is another way of just putting something into a box that really doesn't want to be in a box anymore. The thing that I think is interesting is to see where when we talked about a conventional vineyard, it's nothing but lines of grapes, lines of vines, with everything Mm -hmm. else basically killed off as much as possible. It is so easy for us to do the exact same thing to regenerative agriculture in this case, or really a lot of other ideas where there's so much interplaying around it. There's so much springing up in the idea itself, but we want to cack and kill everything that isn't that specific thing that we can understand and wrap our minds around. And we say that that's the one thing, that's the one or two, three things that are this idea. Everything else is non-existent. Uh, It's a monoculture for an idea. And Mm -hmm. we really do lose out on so much of the interplay that you can have. I love this idea of it being something that is more context driven than necessarily dogmatic standards. I mean, obviously I'm an organic inspector. I understand dogmatic standards and I understand why we have dogmatic standards. The organic label exists the way it does because it can demand a certain marketing power. And the reason it can is because there is a specific idea of what that means. Now kind of leading into that, 
for regenerative agriculture to persist, uh, I'm ask, I'm curious, do you think there needs to be a, a standard for it or a label for it? Or a, does it need to be something that's more marketed to consumers? Or is this something that should be farmers taking it on? Because like Rodale, they're, they've been trying to get a regenerative organic label off the ground for, I think, two years now? Yeah, I, and so... Big question. I'm sorry. Think, no, it's a great it's a great question, and I've been asked this question several times, and so I've had some time to really hone my thoughts around it. But whether I want it to or not, it's going to have a standard applied. And I do think I agree with you. I mean, the reason we certify organic is because I think accountability is mm-hmm. it is how we communicate right now, right? It's how we communicate with the people who buy whatever it is that we put out into the world. And unfortunately, I mean, what I really believe is that that whole system, in in other words, the system that demands that right now, the accountability that we demand from the people who are trying to do better Mm -hmm. needs to be flipped over. We need to demand accountability from the other side of this coin. And we also need to acknowledge that the, you know, what you said so, so truly about the fact that organic commands a market and a value add, the people who need the food, the people who need the fiber, the people who most desperately need to be given whole nutrient-dense food are the exact people who cannot afford it currently. And so for any of this to work and for any real impact to be made on the climate, on our future, on social justice, on national security, the, the demand and the accountability about what happens on the land needs to be completely flipped over and this way of doing things has to become conventional. In other words, in my wildest dreams, we would still have to account for our practices, but you would only have to pay for certification if you chose to cling to those practices that we know are not helping our future, Mm -hmm. that we know are actually walking us backwards. And I, I realize that sounds very far-fetched, but it is actually what I believe is true because I think that the food system and what, you know, what really is driving 80% at least of our biggest crises in the world, including social justice, that the food system is at the heart of that. And Mm -hmm. if people, instead of only ever feeling like your organic inspector or your chemical sales rep is the place that you would look to for support that farms, supply chain, communities would actually gather around this idea of we all will actually do better if we adopt this new systemic way of thinking and way of acting and way of looking at a landscape not as like little provincial pieces of ownership, but where we all depend completely on what happens on all of this land. And we want to support the people who are going to do the work to feed us back to health, to feed us back to climate resilience, to feed us back to watershed completeness. And it's all pretty possible, actually. We don't lack any shred of evidence or expertise to be able to accomplish these things. We just don't have the courage right now or the leadership to push it through. It sounds like what what I'm getting out of what you're saying is it sounds like we have an issue with scale. It's that we are, so much of this is driven by the fact we are trying to enlarge our our influence beyond more local community-based enterprises, beyond more local community-based uh, interactions. 
at least it's been my observation from what I, from what you're saying and from what I get to see that a lot of these issues really come into play once we're trying to play on a much wider map than our systems are necessarily designed for. Even our minds aren't necessarily designed for that. I can't remember what the actual number is, but we can only manage certain amount of relationships at a given time. That's because we're not necessarily supposed to be able to reach around the world and connect with everyone at once. And we tried doing that with our food system. We tried doing that with our personalities. We tried doing that with everything. And I like what you're saying. I think it would be fascinating to see how we'd get there. And I agree. I think it would take a lot of courage for people to start doing that. So maybe this is me putting a little more on you than you need, but what would be some essential first steps that people could take towards that process if they want to do it in their local communities? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. It's, it's the, it's the place where you can really, you can push me really hard because I think it's where the rubber meets the road in terms of what's actually possible. And, and so much of it, as you say, is up against the fact that we, (laughs) as a, as a human race, decided to build a global marketplace and a global social network before we even had met our true communities. And the fact that we, you know, like our capacity to look forward is in direct proportion to how far back we are willing to look and actually remember and learn from Mm -hmm. is not a mark in our favor. But when I think about these things, what we lack currently are models. And so, I mean, I do think that right now in a, you know, transition from one administration to the next, or even if there are places in the world still where 90% of the food that a family consumed is grown by that family. Um, So there are models in the world where it's still working that way. But I think that here, if America is going to continue to be the leader of the free world, and that's debatable, but we have the power in some of these regions, especially in some of our most fertile regions, to develop models for, you know, I don't... I would be happy with a 60% independent supply chain. So like, let's just say 60% of your, you know, what food and fiber you and your community needs comes from your community. And then you can retain that 40% global connection if that's what we feel we really need. And I think there are arguments to be made for like maintaining creativity and diversity and flow of ideas and all of those things. It's fun to get wine from different places. Absolutely. And it would, I mean, just think of the difference that that would make. But where there are existing isolated communities that are agriculturally based already, why not start with those places and look at the set of health problems that are most common there? Look at the, you know, the type of farming that that dominates that region and really think about from a, you know, so most of the time, those communities already are pretty insular. They know one another, whether, you know, and so there's some built-in amount of trust that just comes from being an already isolated community. And you can work with that framework to begin to unravel what would be the rotations of crops, what would be the set of things that, that this region would need to produce and in what succession in order to support this community through its health problems, through its environmental challenges, et cetera, et cetera. And even if 60% of the farmers were willing to participate, you could theoretically, as long as geospatially it all worked out, you could make a tremendous difference in all of those questions. So the, the health problems of the community, the environmental problems of the community, the connectivity of the community, the education level of the community, like who has access to what then becomes more about the the farmers knowing that the community wants 
this from them. And so they're not going to have to send whatever it is that they're growing to a global marketplace where it's subject to commodity pricing and the volatilities of whatever else is happening. You know that you have at least a wholesale customer in your backyard. So all of those costs are already taken off the top. And so even if only 60% of the farmers in a region were to participate, that would mean huge things for the health of the watershed, for the connectivity of the landscape. And you could achieve so much more than if as Mimi or Terrence on our tiny little postage stamp regenerative farm charging twice as much as anyone else who's growing the same thing, we still probably won't succeed very far into the future because at certain scales, some things just aren't possible until there are enough people participating in them. There are real ecological thresholds that require space and connectivity in order for those to come back. And that's the piece of this that I think we really have to look in the face. Like postage stamp regenerative practices run up against thresholds pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, do you think that after, as we're in the midst of, and hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, we'll be looking closer to the end of COVID-19, do you think that we're going to see more people willing to embrace a more community-centric mindset? I think the stage has really been set in the most inviting way. For people to be willing to talk about their supply chains and their communities and their interpersonal relationships. Never have we in my history and in my parents' history, my grandparents' history, never have we been given this kind of moment of self-reflection and what it has meant for the way that we live now to really think about how we could step out of this COVID bubble that we've been in and and really start walking a different path, a better path for all, because I think everyone is craving their community more desperately than they ever have. Even I, who, like, I built a hobbit hole, so <laughs> you can tell what kind of social tendencies I have. But nobody's, I mean, we've never had this kind of craving for community or desire to reconnect with one another. We've also never been shown quite so abruptly the weaknesses of our supply chains. So, and and we're all desperately sick. I mean, like the, the just looking at our Medicare system and what it would actually mean to provide Medicare for all and the fact that like one in two people have type 2 diabetes. We have all the answers and we actually have regions where it would make sense to build models that could then be test projects for doing this on a larger scale or doing it in a place where the urban density is such that it's going to be harder to start there, right? Where mm-hmm. it, you are, so, as a giant metropolis, you are so much more dependent on bringing things in from the outside. But it is the first step, I think. And it's not its not a um, one-size-fits-all, but I think that there are definitely places all over this country where we could develop these regional models. We had uh, earlier this year, I, I should say, as we're recording this in late 2020. Earlier this year, we had uh, Janelle from Barn to Door on the show, and their whole business is centered around helping farmers set up their direct-to-customer sales models, whether it be through delivery, whether it just be on their online store. And they have said that they have seen such wonderful success this year for the farmers that have set up these programs because more and more, especially this year, people are looking at where is my food coming from? I want to make sure I have a source instead of being reliant on, oh, I went to Costco and they're out of organic chicken for the next three weeks. Things like that, it's great to get to see at least even, we're not quite, we're obviously not there yet, but it's great to see that in the midst of the pandemic, it's giving opportunity for farmers and customers to make those connections. Mimi, this has been a wonderful conversation. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work? 
Well, my website is hopewellwine.com. I'm also on Instagram at Mimi Castile. I don't, I don't do the tweeting or anything else. I'm not on Facebook. So those are the, and if you're, if you happen to be in Salem, Oregon, you can sure visit once COVID is over. Um, but yeah, those are the two main places to find me. Thank you again so much for being on the show. Thank you, Terrence. It's been really, really lovely to speak with you. Big thanks to Mimi for joining us on the show today. You can learn more about her and her work by going to hopewellwine.com and by following her on Instagram at Mimi Castile. If you're new to the show, please subscribe on whatever your favorite podcast player of choice is. While you are there, please leave us a rating and review to let others know how great the show is. If you're looking for tips on how to do this, they can be found at intellectualagrarian.com forward slash review. Thank you again for joining us. This has been Terrence Lehew and the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast reminding you to keep farming the dream.